So this morning we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Before we continue, let's pray. Father Almighty, we praise you. We thank you so much for this glorious day, the greatest day in history. We thank you so much that this day you conquered death, you defeated sin, and you gave us hope, Lord. And so, Lord, we celebrate you and the things that you've done. Lord, we pray that this would be a great source of encouragement for everybody here. And Lord, we do pray for those that desperately need to know you, the lost, and those that are hurting, and those that need consoling and comforting. We pray that your presence would comfort and guide them, Lord. We thank you so much that uh, we can come and surround uh, ourselves with the church and be in your presence. May you receive all the glory in Jesus' name. So as I mentioned, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 14 and 15. And if you'll follow me along as we read today's um, verse, or verses rather. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So this morning we're going to be looking at the events surrounding Resurrection Sunday. And from this verse we can see that Christ did not just come to die just to erase sin. There was more to it than that. And so this morning we're going to look at a couple of aspects concerning love. And uh, number one, that love is sacrifice. Number two, that love is dying to self and living or and dying to sin as well. And then number three, that love is living for God. We've talked about this a number of times, how the world has distorted the message of love and has changed it into something that is very superficial, very shallow, something that is very materialistic, if you will. When it comes to love, we know when we're loved upon. We can feel people's affections. But one thing that most people do not like to associate with love is sacrifice. That you have to give up something to show love. And that what, that's what love really is. And so when we look at Christ and his life, we don't have to look very far. In John 15, 13, Jesus himself says that love is something that's special. And, it, and he says this. He says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That you would sacrificially give up your own life so somebody else can be lifted and elevated. That you would submit yourself and sacrifice your own wants and your own desires so that others can be lifted up. And Jesus exemplified this. Not only in his life did he come to serve others, but even in his death, he gave and he laid down his life so that others may live. It's a very difficult concept for people to understand that the Son of God would have to die that others can live. And we talked about this on Friday, how he paid the penalty for our sin. But we're going to talk about a little bit more. What would drive a man to do that? What would drive a woman or a person in any 
any, any circumstance to lay down their own personal desires and their own wants for something that's greater. And that's not necessarily in itself a person, but for the sacrifice that displays the love and compassion towards somebody else to know that regardless of who that person is, that you're willing to deny yourself so that person can be lifted up. And that's very important for us to understand because we don't see a lot of that today. We don't see a lot of self-denial. We see a lot of people trying to elevate themselves at the expense of others. We see a lot of people trying to get ahead by putting others down. This is not love. This is not biblical love. And so as a church, we're called to put our own wants and our own desires aside so that we could live for him and for their sake who was raised. And that's the saints. As we look at Christ and what he did, he loved the church so much that he died for the church. We'll look at that as we um, continue next week in Ephesians. Uh, we'll be starting the book of Ephesians, and we're going to carry through with that book. And in that book, we're going to learn a lot about God's love and just how much he was willing to do for us, not just in his death, but even afterwards. We've, we've talked about love in many respects. We've talked about how when we love others, that's the fulfilling of the law. But one thing that is very popular, and I'll bring it to mind, is 1 Corinthians 13. And Christ exemplified this aspect of love perfectly. In 1 Corinthians 13, um, verse 4, we've heard this before. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And so when it comes to love, we see that Christ was the embodiment of this, these characteristics, these traits. That God would deny himself, that is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, would deny himself and live only for the will of his Father. And he's teaching us that this is how we too should live. If we really want to experience salvation, peace, love, and joy, and all the things that Christ can give us through the Father, we're going to give our lives to him, that we can experience these things in a true fashion. We've been taught the world's love. We've been taught the ways and the morals and the philosophies of the world. But very few of us have truly tasted God and his power. When we truly give ourselves to Christ and we die to ourselves, then we can live for him. And we're going to cover this concept of dying to ourselves, but we really want to hit home that love is sacrifice, that love is something that people display by putting themselves down so that others can be lifted up. And it's difficult in today's society because we don't see a lot of sacrifice. 
We don't see a lot of people wanting to deny their own interests so that somebody else and the kingdom of God specifically can be elevated. We have to be careful. There is no point in denying yourself so that somebody in their own agenda for their own selfish reasons can be lifted up. The scripture is clear that we now live for him. We cannot fall into the trap where we deny ourselves just so that somebody else's selfish plan can be elevated. There is no point in that. What we have to be careful and mindful of is to elevate God and his plan. If we can all rally behind that plan and live for him and for their sake that died and was raised, if we live for him, we know from Matthew 6.33 that he's going to take care of us. God will indeed take care of us. The question is, is do you believe in the kingdom mission enough to make that your focus in life? Do you believe in God and what he did so much that you would take your own agenda, allow it to take a back seat so that the kingdom can be elevated? How do we do that? We elevate those that are in the church. We seek the causes, the needs, the desires of those in the church and what they want to do for God and how they're living, how they're attempting to live that holy life before God, and we come around and we help them. We've got something to do. Well, they have a situation that needs addressing. They've got something that they want to take care of. Maybe they're being tempted. Maybe they got something going on that's very difficult, and they need the support of the saints. Well, we come around, we put around our own selfish agenda, whatever we needed to get done that day, we put it on the side, we put it on the back burner, and we go help those in need so that they can overcome. As they overcome, we overcome because we are all members of each other. So if one has a problem and the church comes around and helps them overcome that problem, the entire church has now taken part in overcoming that problem, and we work together. We have to be careful to isolate ourselves, because that's the number one tendency. Oh, we don't want to bug so-and-so with our problem. We don't want to bug so-and-so with this issue. They're, they're plenty busy. Our job as saints in Christ is to come around and support one another so that we can become overcomers and help others overcome. This is our job. If we start to look at the scriptures and we see how the church operates, we are taught to help the church first. That our duty and our responsibility is to the body of Christ. We are members of Christ and his body. And that's how important the church is. It really is how we treat the church is exactly how we treat Jesus. So we have to look at the church and see it as Jesus' body. Jesus is the head of the church. Well, when we sacrifice our own wants and desires in life to lift up the church and lift up those in the church, we are fulfilling this scripture. How do we do that, though? Well, we know that love is fulfilling the law. 
What does the law say? Love God first with all your strength, might, and soul, right? And then love others. So that brings me to the next point. Love is dying to self and sin. Well, when it says in Scripture we die to self, does that really mean we kill ourselves, literally? No, it does not. Okay? I just want to make that clear. What it means is that we die to our own selfish ambitions, our own wants, and we elevate those in the kingdom. Let's quickly look at Mark chapter 8. And in 8.34 and 35, he says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? There are two competing kingdoms in the world. There's ours, and then there's the kingdom of God, okay? Our kingdom easily gets associated with everybody else who opposed, opposes God and his message. When we decide that our agenda is more important than the kingdom's agenda, then we fall prey to a lot of the temptation that the world does in thinking that we have to live our life too. This is not, as we've talked before, something that we have to choose between, okay? Now, we're not trying to take the world into the kingdom, but by God, or by no means is God trying to tell us, look, you have to be a monk. You have to be a hermit. You have to completely deny yourself of the pleasures in life. Why would God create the world and so many beautiful things if it wasn't for his children to appreciate Okay. Our danger is thinking that we have the ability to put the world and the fun things in the world above Christ. Okay, Christ is saying, look, keep me number one, keep God number one, and you'll still have time to do these other things. The problem is, is that we try to compete and do those things as we talked before. As they compete, what we have is two competing missions, two competing kingdoms. And when we have two competing kingdoms, you're just going to be sad. One has to be the loser. Just think of um, the World Series, for instance. Two teams are in the World Series. You have the kingdom of the American League and you have the kingdom of the National League. And they're two competing kingdoms. Well, both can't win. One of them has to lose. When we look at the final four right now, we have a lot of sad teams. We have a lot of youngsters who are very sad because they put so much emphasis and focus into what they were doing. Well, it's not that they shouldn't be sad. Sure, they worked for it. But what ends up happening is there's a loser, and that loser goes away sad. Well, when we have our kingdom and we have God's kingdom, and we try to compete the two, who do you think is going to win every time? God. And when we try to rival our kingdom up against his, we go away sad. We go away sad. The key is to lift up God's kingdom and to put yours second. 
God is not saying that you shouldn't have dreams. God's not saying you shouldn't have desires. God is just saying, let's just keep those in priority. We all have the desire for a better life. We all have the desire to, to have things better for our kids than what we have, whether it's a better education, a better house, a better job, anything, better relationships, all the things we want for our kids, we want them to be better. Well, just like that, God wants our lives to be better, but in him. Satan wants to trap us by saying, you don't have to deny your life. Just think of Eve in the garden. She's being tempted with that fruit. And Satan's like, you can be just like God in ourselves. Saying that, well, this is okay. This is okay. But when we elevate ourselves, we're not picking up our cross. Think of what would happen if Jesus had elevated himself and his own kingdom and competed with the Father's will, do you think he would have gone on the cross? No. He'd be like, no, there's a different way. I can listen to Satan, and Satan's going to tell me that if I give in to him, he's going to give me all these kingdoms. Well, that's what we believe. We start to believe in this fruit, this forbidden fruit, and we start to think, well, I don't have to go through life by following God. I can obtain the things that I want independent of God. And when we do that, we fall into a trap. We get caught. We find ourselves in trouble because we're not dying to ourselves. The second most critical component of this is that when we decide to run contrary to God's will, we operate in sin. It's a sin. We know what God's will is, but if we do anything that's contrary to God's will, it's a sin. So in other words, when we don't put our kingdom behind his kingdom and allow his kingdom to reign in our lives, and we put ours ahead of his, we're sinning. God needs to be number one. Don't fall into the trap by thinking that God wants to hold you down. That's not what God wants. God wants to use you. He wants to elevate your lives. And he wants to shine a light on you. Why does he want to do those things? So that you can point others to him. God wants you to shine in the midst of a dark world that you can point to him. Now let's look at, the, we were in 2 Corinthians, correct? And let's look at chapter 4. I want you to understand that you are lights for God. That God wants to shine his light on you so bright that the world can't help but noticing you. And then you point that light to Jesus Christ. So I'm going to read this paragraph here. And let's watch the argument that the Apostle Paul uses. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds of the unbelievers 
to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? That he's put this light on us so that we can let light shine out of darkness, so that our hearts can shine. Then we're going to continue. Let's read in, in verse 7. It says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Do you see what he's saying here? So that as Jesus experiences the crucifixion, we as part of his body are also experiencing that crucifixion. We're dying to ourselves, just as Jesus died to himself for the will of God. Likewise, we die to ourselves for the will of God so that God's light can shine in us. So as we mortify our flesh and we mortify sin, at the same time we are being renewed and God's light is shining through us. As we suppress sin, God's light is elevated in our lives. Have you ever seen pregnant women, how they have this hypro glow? I, that's what I call it. <laughs> Maybe you might want to call it something different. But have you ever noticed how women have this glow when they're pregnant? Well, when you're a Christian and you're full force with the Holy Spirit, you have this spiritual glow about you. There's this spiritual glow, and it's the power of God, the Holy Spirit, shining through in you. And people are attracted to this, those who are truly seeking God. Those who truly recognize that there's a difference between some people who are worldly and those people who are spiritual. Those who are spiritual-minded can see it really quick. Those who are of the world, you're just another person. You're just another person. So we see that the light shines in us. Let's continue. It says, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what was written, I believe and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also with Jesus bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving. To the glory of God. And he goes on to see, say that these things are happening every day. Though our outer self is wasting away, he says in verse 16, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Which brings us to the fact that we live for Christ. We're being renewed in the spirit of God. Now, we get the concept of dying to ourselves. 
One of the things that is very difficult, there was a, a Puritan writer, his name was John Owen, and I think it was in the 1600s, somewhere in there, he wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. And when you read that book, it turns your whole concept of sin upside down. And it makes the smallest sin seem like you've just sent Jesus to the cross. It's an amazingly powerful book. When you read this, you will not have the same view of sin ever again. And in Romans, I believe it's 8.13. Yes, it's for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. But one of the things that we need to understand as Christians is killing sin, to learn how to hate sin. And it's difficult because sin creeps up everywhere. It creeps up in our thoughts, creeps up in the things that we say, it creeps up in our actions, it creeps up in conversations, it creeps up in our interactions with other people. All this temptation to sin is there. And if we're not careful, we're actually participating in that sin without us even knowing. Mortify. Kill. Kill the deeds of the body. Kill the things that oppose God's Ten Commandments. You see something rise up? Kill it. It's very important that we understand the brevity of sin. Jesus puts it this way. If your eye causes you to sin, take out your eye. If your hand is causing you to steal, cut off your hand. If you can't control yourself, he says it's better to go to heaven blind than for your whole body to perish in hell. Jesus is painting that the Christian needs to be serious about sin. As we come and we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, we have to really be mindful. What is this day about? Jesus did not die on the cross so we could live willy-nilly and do whatever we want. No, Jesus died on the cross so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for their sake, who died and was raised. We no longer live for ourselves. Everything we do as Christian, as a Christian, is for Jesus Christ. We turn our lives completely upside down, and we make a new number one. Because when we're growing up, who does the world tell you number one is? You got to watch out for number one. You got to watch out for who's in charge. No, that's Jesus. If we teach our kids from day one that Jesus is number one, we don't have to go through this lesson and by the time that they're learning, they understand who's in charge and how the world works. Our mistake is, is that, and I'll be the first, no one really taught me that Jesus was number one. They, they tell me about God and they do the whole thing. But they, I'm thinking about this in my life. Nobody ever told me, son, you got to turn your whole life around and completely mess it all up and restructure it under Jesus. Nobody ever told me that. Nobody ever told me that, hey, Jesus has got to be number one. Read your Bible. Do this. Pray. They never told me those things. I was introduced to him, much like kids today are introduced to the Easter bone. 
much like kids today are introduced to the Great Pumpkin Patch and, and Santa Claus. That's how I was introduced to Jesus. And then you come around at age 13 and you're like, well, you know, son, Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny aren't real. But Jesus is. And, and the kids are all confused. And they're like, okay, let me get this straight. You taught me about all these characters. And now you're telling me that almost all of them are fake, except for this Jesus guy. Where does that leave people and how they reconcile God? From day one, you've been teaching them that all these mysterious characters were real. And then all of a sudden, they realize they're not. But then you have to try and convince them that out of all of them, Jesus was legit. How do you think kids react to that? They're like, it's all a lie. You're going to tell me the Easter Bunny was fake, Santa Claus is fake, but that Jesus is real? When we see today, we can look out in the world, and people would rather believe in the Easter Bunny. They would rather believe in Santa Claus. They would rather believe in all these things, these fictitious characters that we've made up, than the actual power of God. Even churches are duped into it. You can go to any church almost right now and pull them up on Facebook, and what are they having right now? An Easter egg hunt. The last time I checked, Jesus did not die for an Easter egg. Okay? Jesus did not die so the Easter bunny can go hopping around. Jesus died so that we could live for righteousness. The world has been duped. Even the word Easter is from, from evil origins. And I put it this way. Okay, pretend you're having your birthday today. But instead of saying happy birthday to you, we're going to say happy birthday to the person that you hate the most. We're going we're gonna to elevate the person that con runs contrary to you the most and say that, that this day belongs to them. It's like saying happy Satan's day. Think about it. We're taking something that God completely opposes, and we're calling the greatest day in the history of mankind after something evil. And Christians are embracing this. Why? Because they're afraid to offend the world with the gospel message. Oh, I don't want to offend anybody because if they know that Easter is not about the Easter bunny, they may not come to the church anymore. We have churches right now who are having Easter egg hunts every hour on the hour. And then they come into the church and you're going to tell the kid that this day was about Jesus? They're like, look at my candy. Look at my Easter basket. Look at all the eggs I got. And then when they get to of age, we're like, no, no, I know we used to do the Easter egg thing, but it's really about Jesus and we need to change. Don't you feel violated and used as a kid? Like, well, you sent me to go do this thing. I did it because you're my parent. And now you're telling me that that wasn't really right. If we're not careful and we don't die to sin, we will end up in the garbage and in the muck just like the rest of the world. The only way you can differentiate the world from what's going on is through now, how many of you guys like to play video games? I know there's one. There's one. There's one. Okay, so there's three gamers in this room. 
Now, if I'm playing video games, let's say I'm playing, pick a game, League of Legends. Do you play League of Legends? So there's a good game. Okay, League of Legends, right? Now, we know that the game works a certain way. Now, as a beginner, if I come into the game, what if I want to start at level 10? Can I do that? Why not? So you got to kind of start at the basics. Yeah, well, but what if I want to start, like, at 10? It's not how the game works. Okay, well, that makes sense. Well, if I'm to relate life to video games, as people, we like to start off at level 10. And God is like, that's not how the game works. So in order to really succeed at League of Legends, I got to understand the basics of how the game works, and then I build up experience, and then I can move on, right? Is that how it works? Okay, well, our faith works the same way. And the first thing that we need to do as basics is to understand that we need Jesus. So with League of Legends, I can't get to level two in life if I don't have Jesus. Okay, so when I'm living life and I'm going through, if I don't have Jesus, I can't expect to get to level two. So I stay down in level one. And as a pastor, as a minister of God, I can look out the window and I see people like digging through the trash and I see people carrying their stuff and it's all their stuff. And what they fail to realize is that they needed Jesus to get to level two. And so they stay at level one because they think that they have all the answers. And in their minds, they're really at level 10. But if I was to come in and to your video game, right, and I put on my headset and I'm like, let's go, Dallas. And, and I'm like, hey, Dallas, I'm level 10. And you're like, yeah, but your screen's as level one. But in my mind, I'm level 10. And you're like, I'm sorry, Jose, but you're really just level one. But I'm playing and I'm like, I'm level 10. And you're like, well, that Jose guy over there has a difficult time understanding that he's still only in level one, even though he thinks he's in level 10. Well, as a pastor, this is how people live their lives. They go through life and they think, well, I can do this, this, and this, and I don't need Jesus. And then everything falls apart, and they're back down to where they really were, which was level one. And they wonder why. If we really want to get to level 10 in life, we're going to realize that getting to level 10 has nothing to do with the world. And has everything to do with Jesus Christ. And when we die to ourselves and live to God, this is what happens. We start to understand this incredible love that's in the world. We know that there's darkness going on around us. Paul just said, Things are going to be going on around you that are negative. There's going to be trials and tribulations. This world is going to be extremely difficult. But with Jesus, you can overcome knowing that the next world is going to be infinitely better. 
We have to remember that as Christians, we're not living for today. We're living for eternity to be with Christ. Because our lives here on earth is just a vapor. It's just a vapor. That's our life. We're a vapor. We will be disappearing just as fast as we came onto the, onto the planet. In light of eternity, we're just not even a speck on the timeline. So as Christians, we have to be mindful of eternity because we have said that we're faithful to Christ. We have said that God is the way, the truth, and the life, and that there is no other way to live eternally in heaven except through Jesus Christ. As Christians, we believe this. So as a Christian, we understand that our life is just a small little speck on God's eternal timeline. That our time here on earth is so small and minuscule that if we're not careful, we're going to miss the big picture. Everybody likes to live for their time here on earth and want to make the most of it. As Christians, we learn to make the most of eternity. We realize that our citizenship, as Paul writes to the Philippians, is in heaven. We are citizens of heaven and that we're only here on a temporary stop. This is a layover at DIA, if you will. This is a small transfer on our way to eternity with God. And so as Christians, we understand, as it says in 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when somebody asks you, what, why did Jesus die? We know he died for our sins. Okay, Why didn't I cover that really today? Because I strongly believe that everyone in this church has moved on from that. We understand that Jesus has died from our, for our sins. But what do we do now? Well, as those who have put their faith in Christ, we now take that next step. We're not infants anymore. Now it's time for us to grow up and start living for Christ. To really start being those true soldiers that are advocates for, king, for God's kingdom and for Christ. And when we see something that runs contrary to Christ, we're not afraid to speak up about it. We're not afraid to go, you know, I don't think that really makes God happy. We're not really, you know, we have to get to the point where we're not really afraid to speak for God, that we are his advocates. We see something going on in our family. We know it's not right. We know that it's destructive. We're not afraid to speak up. We're not afraid to speak up on behalf of Christ. Love is living for Christ. It's time to put our own agenda down and to rise up in the power of God and to elevate his kingdom. It really is. When we think about the word Easter, right? In the 7th or 8th century, there was a book written by one person. Eventually, years later, the church catches on, and the Catholic Church starts using the word Easter for resurrection. 
by one person and their mistake. That mistake eventually carried over. There's 15 copy errors in the, in the King James. That's one of them. The King James Version, unfortunately, as great a Bible as it is, is the only Bible in existence that uses the word Easter. And it's sad because one person made a copy error based on what they knew to be from cultural experience. So my thought is if one person can completely taint the world into calling it Easter, Maybe one person can stand up and say, no longer are we going to call it Easter and start changing it and calling it what it was originally called, which was Passover and Resurrection Sunday. These are small deals, but wouldn't we rather say Happy Resurrection Sunday, Christ is risen, than Happy Easter? Think about it. We don't want to be duped by the subtle things of the earth. Eve, Eve was duped. They told her that that apple was simple and harmless and that it wouldn't be a big deal. But as soon as she took a bite of that apple, her life and Adam's life completely changed forever by one little sin. One little sin. There's a saying that says, little sins lead to big trouble. If we're not living for Christ, we're living for sin. These little sins will creep up in our lives. And before you know it, those little sins explode in our face. And we're like, well, I just thought it was a simple little thing. I didn't think much of it at the time. And then before you know it, that sin has grown and grown and grown and grown. And now it's this big 800-pound gorilla in the room that has to be addressed because you didn't deal with it when it was small and crushing. If we don't crush sin, it will crush us. If we're not dealing with the sin in our lives, then we're not living for Christ. As a small church... It's easier for us to become holy. It's easier for us to maintain that holiness. It's easier for us to be accountable. One of the things that I hear quite frequently is, well, why do you go to Flatirons Church? Well, I go to Flatirons Church because I can duck in and then I can duck out. I'm like, really? 15,000 people and not one person saw you? Really? That's amazing. I think you should be a thief. <laughs> <laughs> think about it. How can you sneak into a church with 15,000 people and you sneak out and they don't even know you? Well, if the body didn't know you were there, then maybe you weren't really there. Because we can't go through life just looking to get check marks. Okay? That's the danger for us men, okay? Men like check marks. We like the to-do the, the to list. We like to, oh, scratched off, mission accomplished. Well, when it comes to our Christianity, there is no check mark. The check mark, you get the check mark when you're dead. And Jesus says, oh, good job, faithful servant. Check. <laughs> That's your check mark. So if we're not careful, we're living for sin instead of Christ. Now I'm going to wrap up with... 
with what it means to be a Christian. Okay? Now, when it comes to the fact that we're Christian, we are 100% controlled by Christ. That's what the scripture says. It says, for the love of Christ controls us. A Christian knows that he is controlled by the love of Christ. That he can't help but be influenced to do the things that he's doing because he's under the influence of the Holy Spirit. He's under the, the power and the, how would I say that? He is so in love with God and his spirit that he can't help but do the things that he does. And if he does things that are contrary to that, he knows that he's hurting God. And I was thinking about this this morning. What is a good litmus test for us to, to determine what sin is? How do we know if we're really operating in God's will? Well, a quick, and this is by no means the only litmus test, but if you're going to do something and you know that it would piss off your boss and you would get fired for it, then you shouldn't do it to God. That makes sense. If you can't, if you can't take those things to your boss and say your boss is going to be like, oh, yeah, no problem. Do whatever you want. And we know that to be most of the case. Most of the case, we can't take half the junk we take to church to the boss. We know that. Let's just be honest. We get fired. But yet, for some reason, we think that, well, God's not really there. I can, I can kind of fudge. That's the trap. Okay? We abuse the liberty to sin. If you can't get away with it with your boss, then you shouldn't try it on God. That makes sense. Okay? And, and just think of some of the things that God has asked us to do. Well, if we're going to try and come up with an excuse and give that to our boss, what would he say? And if our boss wouldn't like it, then certainly God won't like it. And that's the litmus test. So when it comes to being a Christian, we know that the Christian does the will of God. The Christian, in their mindset... And by the power of the Spirit, they live for God. The second thing is, and we've talked about this today, that the Christian comes to learn to hate sin. They really do. Things that oppose God and his will will drive a Christian crazy. If it doesn't drive you crazy, then ask yourself why it doesn't drive you crazy. Ask, ask, your, ask God to give you an understanding of why this is even a sin. If you don't understand, because a lot of things are sinful and people don't understand why they're sinful. Like uh, a good one is divorce. A lot of people don't understand why divorce is so bad, why God hates it. And, and so then you have to really go through the teaching and, and then the whole nine yards and then they kind of understand it. So the next thing is a Christian loves the church. The Christian lives to build up Christ and his church. We know from Ephesians chapter 4 that Christ is married to the church, and it says that the two have become one. And so if Christ and the church are one, then we know that when we live for Christ, we live for the church. And when we live for the church, we live for Christ. The two are inseparable. And then the last thing is that a Christian gives himself up for others. It's really important that we have this mindset of kindness, compassion, 
and generosity towards, towards the world. Not only just the church, but those that we interact with. And we show compassion and mercy and kindness to those outside in the world. So, Father Almighty, we praise you. We thank you so much for this time that we can come together and reflect on the events that took place 2,000 years ago. And Lord, you are risen. You are the risen God. You are alive and you have defeated death. You have defeated sin. And we can say, oh, sin, oh, death, where is your sting? And so, Lord, we give our lives to you. We give our hearts to you. And we continue to ask you to make us more and more like you. We thank you so much for this day where you defeated death and you made a way for us to live just like you. Thank you so much for your incredible love. In Jesus' name.